market. The S&P, the ISX stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our special Sunday mailbag edition. Something that, well, it's still special. It's just not exactly unusual these days because we get so much fantastic correspondence from you, our listeners. I'm Scott Phillips, and with me, as always, on this wonderful sunny Sunday afternoon, Dr. Nirvan Mahati. How are you, Doc? I'm good, Captain. You know, it's, it's a wonderful, partly sunny Thursday. <laughs> it is now. But apparently Sunday is going to be not. So I'm, I'm assuming, I'm, I'm, what, what, are, what, are they, what are the cuckoos do they project? that They, they kind of, you're supposed to project the, the, the life you want to live or something? Is that what you're supposed to do? Yeah, but, but I'm worried now. You're taking, trying to take over the job of the weatherman. That's a problem. <laughs> Mate, what do they say? Weatherman only exists to make economists look good. So make of that what you will. <laughs> All right, nice tangent to start with, as we like to do, because, oh, frankly, this show isn't scripted. Surprisingly enough, I know people find it hard to believe, but this is not scripted. We have some talking points that we'll just pretty much go for it after that. We are recording this on Zoom, and so I will say again, as I said on Friday, um, this is, uh, we're, we're going to do our best to struggle through with the technology. Um, we've got on NBN and the 4G network aren't exactly uh, as good as we otherwise might like, partly because, well, let's not get political, but there's plenty of people using it, put it that way. So the, the bandwidth isn't what we're used to. It's been pretty good on Friday. We hope we'll be okay while we go through your questions and comments today. Doc, shall we just get into it? Let's do it. Beautiful. The first question, mate, comes from Jara. And given it's a mailbag episode, he starts with, Hi, Scott and Doc, really enjoying the podcast and the mailbag segment. So I'll take that. He says, I'm a happy share advisor and dividend investor subscriber, and the two of you have helped me enormously in my investing journey thus far. Um, that, Jarrah, and, and thank you for that. While it's obviously, you know, we always like praise, Doc, we genuinely, as I say, semi-regularly, are genuinely humbled when people do find our advice and our words useful. Uh, that's what we're doing it for. That's why we're here. So uh, thank you, Jarrah. Much appreciated, mate. He says, my question is about chess holdings. Chess being the computerized system that the ASX uses to track who owns what. He says, I'm looking at changing from ANZ share investing to something like Saxo to save myself some brokerage costs and give me a more affordable way to buy some US stocks. He says, with ASX stocks, the low-cost brokers give the option of using the Chess register or their own custody option, which costs less. Could you please shed some light on the two differences between, uh, sorry, the differences between these two options and the potential cons to using the lower cost option. He finishes saying, thanks for the help, full on, and of course, hashtag get Doc on Insta from Jara. Now, Doc, before you jump in, I will add, Jarrah then sent me a follow-up message, uh, not too far afterwards, uh, to say, hi, Doc, I can now add that I've just signed up for Extreme Opportunities as well and look forward to making a handful of additions to the speculative stocks I've already purchased upon your recommendation. Cheers, mate, Jarrah. So there you go, Jarrah is a member of all of our front-end services, share advisor, dividend investor and extreme opportunities. Mate, the custody choices that Jarrah's got between a chess sponsored holding and a broker sponsored or a, a, a different custody option, the pros and cons and what would you do? Yeah, so the chess sponsored uh, option, basically what that means is there's a computerized record that essentially says, well, that particular share, the share number belongs to you. So um, it's, a, it's in many ways a one is to one sort of uh, a tracking system, right? Um, and and I guess in the event a broker vanishes, the chess system basically says, well, you still own the shares, right? Um, when you have a broker-sponsored uh, holding, what happens really is that the shares are held in trust at the broker 
on your behalf and everybody else's behalf. And, uh, you know, in, in theory and in practice, they should not be touched by, so they're not part of the assets owned by the brokerage, for example, right? They're, because they are not the brokerage's assets, right? Now, so, so the difference there is that it's not a one-is-to-one -one holding in the sense that, yes, there's some record that says that it is yours, uh, but it is held in behalf, on behalf of clients uh, by the brokerage. That, that's it. Now, the brokerage, this brokerage model or this uh, trust model is very common in the United States. It's very common in, um, in other parts of the world, including in Europe. Um, the chess is very unique to Australia. Um, I don't have a particular preference uh, of one over the other, um, largely because, um, again, you have, you know, the chess model basically says, well, you have one is to one um, uh, ownership of shares. And the other model you basically have, well, you know, there is a, there's this, this broker, there is this trust that is supposed to guarantee um, ownership of the shares. Eff effectively, as long as you believe in the laws of the land, then, uh, you know, either model is actually fine. Because I mean, the, the the there's always ways in which people can get around it. But you know, if if you believe in the various legal options available and the you know the law of the land, then it should be fine. That's how I look at it. Um, in terms of these particular things, I have accounts with Saxo. Uh, the thing I'll point out is so Saxo's trading trading costs are definitely more. Uh, than many of the others, for example, uh, Comsec, say, say, you know, you can buy actually, I, I buy SX shares for about $6.99 or something like that. The thing I'll point out with Saxo, though, is uh, Saxo has a model where it has, uh, uh, it's almost like a fund manager is taking um, a, a maintenance fee of the assets under management, or rather, which presumably, technically, the assets are not under management because you are the manager of the assets, so you own the <laughs> asset, right? <laughs> but you're still paying a fee. It's small, but you know the thing is that you know, 0.12 percent of a large sum is still something. So if you therefore you have to factor that in when you are considering if if your only reason to move is cost, then you've got to factor that in because that is a real cost. Right now, the advantage of the of this account platform, as you have just rightly men, men, mentioned, as this is the reason why I have it is or I use it, is it it is not only a way to buy stocks on the ASX, but it is also a way to buy stocks overseas, not just the U.S. market, but you can pretty much buy uh, of like thirty or thirty five or different um, uh, markets uh, provide access access is provided to those markets via uh, the, yeah, and it's got it's got a cool, cool platform in the sense that you know you can choose your your base currency you can link your bank account to it you can transfer money back and forth and you can you know it reports everything in Australian dollars for you um, so it's it's cool on that way but there is a cost to it absolutely and I, you know uh, and as a user I'll just point that out so that's the um, the, the two I think uh, differences I'll point out um, yeah, and uh, again, uh, and then the final thing I'll point out is if somebody's looking to trade uh, buy U.S. shares, and mm. the you, one of the things to consider right now, in my view, or from from any brokerage point of view, is if you're buying U.S. shares, technically all the big major U.S. brokers are actually providing zero dollar trading. You do not pay brokerage anymore in the U.S. So therefore, if you have the ability to open an account with, say, something like Charles Schwab or Fidelity or whatever else, you know, interactive mm -hmm. uh, interactive broker is still not zero. I think, uh, again, I'm not 100% across this, but I think Fidelity, TD Ameritrade, and Charles Schwab are zero. If you can open an account with them and your interest is only U.S., then those three will actually give you no account keeping fee and you pay nothing for trading. Uh, mm -hmm. 
those look like the you know the best um, best deal. Uh, the final thing I think for people, that, you know, again, this depends. This is a very individual thing. It's so what level of protection you want in your account. So, if a broker is a U.S. based broker, then they they are governed by um, an organization called Speak, which. Mm-hmm. Is um, which you have to, which the broker has to be a part of, and if the broker is part of that, then uh, then you know essentially disappearance of your account up to I think five hundred thousand dollars is protected. Now, if if you're buying through Saxo, I don't think I'm not hundred percent sure of this, but Saxo because it's 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 governed by ASIC laws here in Australia because you're buying actually buying um, through Saxo. Saxo's platform in Australia that is not governed by Speak, so you are relying on Australian laws for protection versus on the Speak for insurance. So, so that's an important distinction to keep in mind. Um, again, what is comfortable for people, you know, there are different risks and so on um, that you need to consider. So, that, yeah, that's my overview of um, brokerage accounts. Nice, mate. That's a pretty solid answer. I'm going to add a couple of thoughts uh, just to Jarrah's question. I'm going to say. I'm, I'm probably a bit more conservative than Doc in terms of the Australian market. I would happily pay an extra couple of bucks per trade to have the stocks in my own name. Um, think of it as, as, as causing insurance premium. Uh, if you had a you know a, a vault full of gold, you either have it in your name or you have it in the bank's name, and the storage might be a couple of bucks a year different. Would you you know would you pay the extra money? It comes out of a cost benefit thing. Now to Doc's point, I don't think it's likely. That being said, let's remember Opus Prime was a broker who did go broke and took a very, very large chunk of client money with it. Now, I'm not talking about Saxo as a comparison or any other broker. I don't want to start getting into the why they're the same or different. I just want to remind people that, in this case, as you say, Doc, there is no Australian insurance scheme for it because we have chess. Um, and so I, for me personally, I wouldn't, in a month of Sundays, take the risk. I'd happily pay five bucks more a trade or whatever the numbers are to to have chess ownership. So I knew that I knew that I knew they couldn't take it away. The flip side might be, if something went wrong with your broker, and you had, uh, let's pick a number, 50 grand worth of shares and they disappeared or you lost most of it, would you have in hindsight have paid 10, 15, 20, 30, 50, 100 bucks more for brokerage over that period of time to have absolute unquestionable title for those shares? I think you would. Um, you, know, you wouldn't do it for your house. You wouldn't say, oh, my house is just in the, in the street name and as long as the street doesn't go broke, I'll have my house. Um, so, you know, I think there's, there's absolutely, uh, the chances are very slim and small, like really honestly. For me personally, I just figure it's an insurance premium worth paying. So I would do that. And a doc's point about using a, you know, the SIPIC stuff does only apply to international trades um, stocked in the US. And probably just be careful even to make sure the broker you're using is covered in the US, again, as Doc mentions. Um, Schwab is great. I, I've, I found it fantastic. I don't have any shares in it. Um, Interactive Brokers, mate, is free, by the way, for basic commissions. Um, they do charge a tiny, tiny, tiny fee apparently for sell orders, uh, which just covers the transaction costs with their broker and other people. So for what that's worth, um, but yeah, look, I think Schwab is perfect. I can't comment the others. I'm sure Doc uses Saxo. That's great. He knows what he's doing. So there, there's some options for you there. But I would, I would absolutely always personally, and this is just a personal view. I'm not saying you should necessarily do it. I would always go with chess over something else, and I'd pay happily, maybe not happily, but willingly, um, the extra amount to make sure that I knew that they could never take it off me because the broker itself got into some trouble, which again has happened before with Opus Prime and others. Uh, I just don't reckon it's a risk you want to you want to take. Any more to add on that, Doc? No, nothing to add. Beautiful. Thank you, sir. Next question comes from Gareth. Gareth says, hey, Scott and Nirvan, I absolutely love the podcast and appreciate your insights bounced with humility and genuine intelligence. I must be the humble one, mate, because I'm certainly not the genuinely intelligent one. I have a question for the podcast on a biotech 
paradigm listed on the ASX. It seeks to develop injectable pentosan polysulfate, luckily I'm not the doctor here, for treatment of OA, which is a massive market worldwide. The upside is massive and there is phase one and two trial evidence to suggest the drug will work. The flip side is that the company is reliant on the fortunes of just one drug. Although it has a long history of safety and appears efficacious, how do you balance the risk of the drug failing for some reason with the massive upside in calculating a reasonable share price? Thanks for answering if you get time. Gareth, well, Gareth, we do have time. We are answering your question, mate. Thank you for the very kind words. I don't know if you know anything about Paradigm or Pentosan polysulfate. I certainly don't. Um, but in the so either you can talk about Paradigm if you want to, or more broadly, how do you kind of think about trying to handicap the odds or the investability of a biotech? Yeah, so biotechs are hard. Um, so like in this particular case, I don't know anything about Paradigm specifically. But he has mentioned that, you know, uh, they have one drug that is, uh, you know, past phase one and or is in phase one or phase two trial. Okay, one, one way to think about this is to think about sort of the how much time it takes for a drug to go from phase one to phase two to phase three and then eventually uh, approval by the FDA. I'm guessing he's talking about FDA approval because, you know, typically the FDA approval is the hardest one to get and the U.S. is the largest healthcare market. So, that, you know, if you're looking, if you're thinking about uh, opportunity, I think that's what he's thinking mm -hmm. about. In that case, then, you you know, like something like 20%, 15 to 20% of drugs that actually enter phase one actually exit and get approved. So, and you can get statistics on it. And again, depends on the type of drug and the industry and whether or not it's, uh, um, you know, what type of agent it is, small molecule, large molecule and things like that. I think they, they, there are different probabilities that you can get, like you can get historical data uh, and then you can use that to handicap. So, you know, let's say that there's only a 20% probability that actually this, this drug hits the market. You know, if you think that if it is, it's worth $5, if it hits the market, um, well, that's only 20% probability. <laughs> Effectively, it's, you know, on on a probability basis, and it's like worth a zero if it actually does not hit the market, right? Then, you know, you take 20% off or you uh, multiply by 0.2 to 5, and you arrive at a price of $1, right? So that's, that's kind of like a fair value estimate based on... Now, this is, of course, you'd have to then factor in many other things, right? You'd have to factor in the fact that to get from phase one... To actually phase three and FDA approval, it could take like several years, like six, seven, eight, ten years. Sometimes it takes to actually get drugs on the other side. To get the drugs approved, you know, sometimes clinical trials are sponsored by government agencies and things like that, and hospitals and doctors who are doing research. But a lot of the time, the company actually has to foot the bill for that. So there's going to be dilution along the way. So there's a whole heap of things one has to consider. By and large, biotechs with um, early stage something in some niche area are tend to be very, very speculative and they're extremely difficult to value uh, because of that reason, again, because of all these variabilities. Uh, so you can't really, you know, it's like, call it the, in the if, if somebody is calling, you know, extreme opportunity speculative, then this is really in the top of that extreme opportunity pile <laughs> of, of speculation. Right. Um, right. So you just got to be, you know, again, just got to be careful that, yeah. Yeah, this is this is like a bit of a lottery, and you you know if you know 
know a little bit about the industry, you know, understand what the drugs are doing, you know what the trial is doing, the more you know about the industry, it gives you some advantages. You can better read the information um, and make assessments. Maybe you can tweak your probability of, you know, the average being 20%, but maybe this is much higher for this one for whatever reason. Of course, you can't take management's commentary because management is always going to say, well, it's their job to say that we are doing well, right? Nobody's going to come and say, we are going to fail and you should still give us money. That doesn't work that way. Um, I don't mean that they are lying, but they have to believe in what they're doing because otherwise they wouldn't be doing it. Uh, but it's our job then to figure it out. So in general, very hard. I don't have any views on paradigm. Uh, my preference with biotech is to wait for a product to be approved in certain markets, right? Um, or at least have one product approved. That is almost always a sign that they have the means and the capability and the processes and the know-how to actually get something through the door it is really hard to get things through the door. So that's that's a kick in terms of their capability and their processes and their management team uh, and so on. So without that, I really tend not to swing at biotechs. And uh, the, the times I've done it, you know, I've come out on the other side, not making <laughs> any money. Um, you know, I, I, I hold a couple of biotechs, even people might have seen, but most of them are, you know, those, those have not made money. And I, I generally am very slow to sell. So, you know, they're just sitting there. You are, you're, you're a, certainly a more resourceful investor than I am, Doc. I, I, it's hard, right? There's just so much that goes into this, as you say, the chance of getting approved in the first place, the cost and potential dilution for shareholders on the way through. Eventually, you get it gets approved, but you've been diluted 10 for one on the way through. Your payback's going to be, you know, meaningfully lower than what you may have expected. Um, even, even just the, even if you get approved, you've got to have doctors actually take up your therapy and then prefer it to someone else's for some other reason. Um, there's just so many. Certex was a company that we recommended at Share Advisor. Uh, was recommended by my predecessor, um, and we had it on the scorecard for a few years. And it was just one of those things where, even though it was it was in phase three, then it spent you know forever trying to get more approvals for more different treatment types, for more modalities, for more different you know uh, issues. It tried to get a bigger share of the market that it was actually approved for because there was other competitors. Um, it, it's it can seem like a really you know, big payoff opportunity. You know, you put a, put a buck down now, you get 100 bucks at some point in the future. That's super seductive, right? But to my mind, mate, this is almost more venture capital investing than, than, than sort of traditional stock market investing, right? Because of the, particularly for those one drug businesses, it's kind of trying to, you know, like you would do if you're buying you know, a, a bunch of VC startup, you know, tech companies trying to work out, okay, I'm going to buy 20 of them here. Here's the base I'm using. Here's why I think the probabilities are in my favor and kind of letting it happen. But you, as you say, you kind of, you don't need to have specialist knowledge, but gee, it helps. Yeah, you're right. All right. Question from Nick about Avita Medicus. Hey, fools, appreciate the weekly content you guys put out and the extra Q&A podcast at the moment. Great value all round. I hope so. Nick, you're paying zero for it, mate. <laughs> That's not valuable. You're wasting your time. Um, I have a question about Avita Medical. I have owned shares and recently got an email saying they're going to apply to re-domicile to the NASDAQ. Other than saving on the ASX reporting costs, are there any benefits for a company to do this? Currency gain, etc. They have little to no operations here and almost all of their staff are US-based. Thanks in advance. He says, uh, but P.S. maybe Doc can meet us halfway on Insta and reply to some comments on the Motley Fool page. Hashtag get Doc on Insta. Uh, I, I, will, uh, I will pass the comments on Doc from, from, the, from the Fool Facebook page. Uh, sorry about that, Nick. Uh, Doc, so Avita is going to, has announced plans to, I don't know if it's absolutely approved and guaranteed, but it's planning to go to the US. Um, 
Why would a company do that? And then in Avita's case, how is it looking after Australian shareholders? Right. So effectively what Avita is doing is, uh, okay, so maybe the simplest way to think about this is to think about, say, a company called ResMed, right? Mm-hmm. So ResMed is, ResMed's primary listing is in the New York Stock Exchange in the U.S., and it has CDIs basically trading here, which is CDI? effectively like, yeah, like so what chest depository, whatever it is called. Interest. I don't know what it's yep. Yeah, interest, yeah. <laughs> um, so basically, effectively, some number of shares of the company are held in, you know, in trust, think of it, and those basically become trading instruments for the ASX, right? It's the same thing as... Um, as as ADRs, I guess, but which is the reverse way, the reverse CDI. I think of the you know if you have a stock trading here, and you can have uh, you know um, those um, you know ADRs trading in the US now. Right. And you can in, buy Westpac in shares in the US exchange, can't you? Using an ADR? Yeah, yeah, you can buy. Yeah, so you have BHP, Rio, and right. things like that. I think with Commonwealth Bank, I think you can buy um, a bunch of things. So, so they're basically. Just doing that, the shares, their shares do trade currently on the US market, on the NASDAQ market right right yeah. now. So they're basically just saying that they want to change the primary listing to the US, which basically means that um, their primary reporting is going to be in the US. So they're going to report every quarter, you follow the US reporting standards, and basically just lodge a copy here with the ASX. Um, why would they be doing it? Um, so, well, in, in most cases, it probably does not matter uh, whether you're doing it this way or that way. The reason I think they're doing it is um, for pretty simple. I, I, I mean, you know, um, he gave away all the, the reasons, right? I mean, they have no staff really in, in Australia. Uh, their product is approved and largely selling in, um, in the U.S. That's the largest healthcare market. I think the second largest healthcare market is Japan. Uh, so... So the you know if if all the staff are there all, all their costs are there, I would suspect that you know uh, that makes sense from a cost point of view. Uh, having a listing here, they're keeping the listing here, and uh, there's there's historical reasons, I guess. You know, the company was listed here, is is um, uh, you know so Dr. Fiona Woods tech or the tech that was invented in her hospital uh, in in Perth uh, is what forms the, the, the basis of the tech that she and then her. Um, so those people who know of doing the Bali bombings, um, a lot of the victims got treated at, uh, at, at Perth using this tech way back in like, you know, 2002, 2003. So this is a commercialized version of that thing. So I think there's a reason why it is here listed in, in Australia, which is Australian links basically stopped there. It's basically now a, a U.S. place. So there's some reason for doing that. I would I would suspect the other reason would be that um, for growth and growth capital, uh, biotechs may find it easier. Again, this is a may um, to raise capital there. Now that doesn't mean exactly as we're talking about on the on the podcast on the Friday podcast. You know, Mesoblast is raising money here, so you could raise money here, raise money there. Um, but I, I just suspect it's largely a function of the fact that, you know, CEO is there, the entire management team is there, the sales force is there. Um, you know, what's the point of having a token listing here as, as head office? You can always keep the shares. So it, from a shareholder point of view, it does not really make a difference. Um, it maybe makes a difference to a business. I am not 
100% convinced that it does or does not. I mean, you know, if you could be listed here and still raise capital, those people who want to give you capital would give capital. Small biotechs in the U.S. tend to always look for big partners to sign up and, you know, sort of back them up. Um, you know, would a big partner not come because it's Australian listed? I don't know. Maybe. I have I mean, again, for anybody who's partnering, it's just an interest, right? So whether it's an interest in shares here or interest in shares there, it doesn't really matter. Um, uh, Mesoblast, for example, has had international partners and still has international partners with shares. Uh, even small companies uh, listed, you know, listed really small micro caps have got investments mm-hmm. um, from large U.S. corporations. Even in sense. so, so. It could be a cost-saving thing. It's, it's again the rationale could be multiple things: cost-saving, just logistics, uh, visibility, um, you know, market participation, you know, things like that. So, yeah. If I was a uh, if I was a cynical man, mate, I would say it's largely about trying to get more people to want to buy the shares and maybe access to capital. It, it doesn't seem like there are strong operational reasons. To, to, to make a move. You might domicile there instead of here to start with. The change, everything that goes with it feels like it's a pretty, uh, that does, yeah. doesn't look like a lot of strong operational yeah. reasons to do, I'll put it that way. Yeah, so maybe the cost factor, it, it is could be a capital reason really. Like, I mean, the, it, it is hard. I mean, the US market, as I said, it's the largest healthcare market. So uh, maybe they believe that you'll get a better valuation there. Therefore, yeah. it, you know, if you if it's like, I, I think here's the thing: the company was too small to be listed in the U.S. to be to be of meaningful value to U.S. investors. Right. Um, we are we are a great small cap market. But now this company is nearly a billion dollars in value. It gets to a point where I think it'll get into the radar of a bunch of investors, right? So, yeah, yeah. so maybe they're being opportunistic. Is you know we use the small cap market of Australia first. Now that we are a large enough company, we don't need the small cap mar- market anymore. Uh, we need you know if you want to be tens of billions of dollars uh, sized biotech, then all the big biotechs are listed there. So we just go there. It, maybe they're just being opportunistic. You know, it's. it's I don't know. I'm making up reasons. <laughs> <laughs> let's go with that. All right. Let's uh, let's move on, mate. Right, good answer. A question from Hoppy. Actually, what's the question? He says, hey, Scott, not a question, but I've been loving you and Doc's takes during this whole situation we're in. And I especially love the chat with Warren Hogan, which I listened to today. It also appears the PM also listened and liked what was said. And he puts a, uh, a screenshot about one of the Prime Minister's plans around the JobKeeper uh, changes. Uh, thank you, Hoppy. Very, very kind of you to say. Uh, mate, one, I, I wanted to mention that only because right, we all like positive feedback, but also because we might do some more interviews with important people, worthwhile people, people worth hearing from or we can learn from. If you, dear listener, have a suggestion for who you might like to hear us speak to, who you'd like to hear from, preferably in the investing and finance space, but hey, we're, we're pretty open. Um, as long as it's entertaining or worthwhile and worth our listeners' time, we are here for you. So please let us know if there, are, if there are particular speakers or particular, whether they're business executives, whether they're industry experts, whether they're whatever. Um, again, something that I hopefully fits in our wheelhouse because as much as Doc and I like synchronized swimming, we're not particularly experts on that. So we probably give that one a miss. Um, let us know. And this is probably a good time to share the socials, mate. So if you want to hit us up on Twitter, that's where Doc and I both are. Doc's a very discerning man when it comes to social media. I'm happy to go anywhere. Hit us up on Twitter. So Doc is at Anirban Mahanti. I'm at TMF Scott P. And the Motley Fool's account is at The Motley Fool AU. Big surprise there. That's our Twitter handles. On Instagram, 
Doc's not there yet, despite the hashtag get Doc on Insta. We must be in double figures now, Doc. At some point, you're going to have to waver, I think. I'm, I, I'm, still, I'm still optimistic. I'm still hopeful. Uh, in the meantime, though, while Doc's not there, hit me up at TMF Scott P. And again, at The Motley Fool AU. On Instagram, there are Insta handles. On Facebook, I'm at Scott Phillips Money, all one word. And The Motley Fool is at The Motley Fool Australia. Again, super surprising. And if you want to email us, you can, info at fool.com.au is how you can send us an email on our member services team. Our crack member services fool will make sure we get that information straight from you and can incorporate it into our podcast, particularly these mailbag episodes. So there you go. Thank you again, Hoppy, for the feedback. Uh, thank you for listening. And let's uh, let's get some questions, some ideas, some suggestions. Who would you like to hear from? We've had Maureen Hogan a couple of times now. We've had Eliza Owen from uh, now CoreLogic. Uh, she's been great. We're looking for some more business leaders we probably will have on at some point, some more industry experts, some economists. What do you want to hear from? Let us know. All right, moving on. Question, next one, mate, comes from Mark. Mark says, hi, Scott and Doc. Thanks for answering my previous question. I currently had a decent amount of shares in Alt Resources, ALT Resources. He says, this was announced today. And it's a conditional off-market takeover offer to our 100% of the shares, in, in short. And Mark asked, this is, I don't know what resources from Adam, mate, I'm pretty sure you don't either. But uh, he says, if, so there's an offer for the 100% of the shares, does this mean if I, I have to sell my shares if it goes through? Thanks in advance and fool on. I thought I'd drop, grab this one, Doc, and you can then add to it. Um, Mark, broadly speaking, mate, the deal is that in Australia, there is what they call compulsory acquisition laws. If a company gets to 90% ownership, or any entity of a listed business, it can compulsorily acquire the remaining 10% for the same price it paid for the first 90%. And what that basically is to do is, if you're a, if you want to take over a business, let's say you're Woolies and you want to buy Coles, let's just say for the argument, it's not any, you know, it just doesn't make any sense if you own 99.85% of the Coles, but it still runs a separate entity because three shareholders with 400 shares each decided they didn't want to sell. And so the, the, the law basically says, look, if you get as a company close enough or you get over 90%, you own almost all the shares, you can simply buy the rest. It helps the acquisition be finalised and you can actually make it part of your other company. If you, if you only own, as I said, 99.99% of the shares of a company, you'd have to run as a separate standalone business with all the appropriate reporting and uh, corporate governance and everything else. So it just doesn't make any sense. Now, you could say as an individual shareholder, it's kind of a bit crappy and it can be. Uh, but just, just, I think for the good functioning of the stock market, it just makes sense. If you get more than 90%, get to buy the rest. So that, that's the answer, mate. It depends also on how the, the deal is being done. So they've made an offer to buy them all. Whether or not the deal goes through depends on what the, um, what the rules are. Often the conditions of the deal might be, we're offering to buy them all, but we'll only acquire the shares if we get to 90%, for example. Others will say we only do it to get to 50% or something else. So whether you have to sell your shares will depend on whether the, what they call the acceptances, in other words, the people who have said, yeah, we'll sell to you, um, if they hit the conditional, whether that's 50%, 90%, whatever, um, if they get to 90, you will have to, you won't have to sell the shares. The shares will be sold for you on your behalf and you'll be sent a check. You can, of course, sell them shares on the market in the meantime and, uh, and take advantage of that in advance if you want the money more quickly. Doc, anything else for that? No, I have actually nothing to add. Beautiful. All right, next question from Ben, mate. I like this one. Uh, this was sent uh, a couple of, uh, last week, so the good news is Ben's out. He says, G'day, Scott. Mate, I am just finishing day 14 in isolation in Melbourne. 
after returning home from working overseas. Welcome home, Ben. I've caught up on the last couple of your podcasts and they've been a great help passing the time. Big thanks to you and to Doc. I did have one follow-up question regarding investing in US stocks. I know a few weeks ago you spoke about how people should not let the added steps of getting into the market deter them from taking the plunge. But at this point in time, given the exchange rate, should we consider that risk as well? I.e., um, as the ASX, so as the AUD moves from circa 65 cents to 80 cents, then a US stock would need to grow by 20% just to break even. I am keen to know your thoughts there. Full on, cheers, Ben. Now, Ben, we've answered this question a few times in different guises, so we won't spend too long on it because our otherwise loyal listeners might eventually say, guys, how many times can we answer the question on currency? Uh, so we will do that. I'll give a two sentence answer and Doc can give some more thoughts. Broadly, Ben, that's true if the dollar goes to 65 and stays at 80, then yes, you've got to get a 20% gain to break even. It's like saying if I bought a share for a dollar for the 80 cents, wouldn't I need 20% gain to break even? Well, yeah, you would. If the stock then goes on though to $4, then what happens in the meantime doesn't really matter. So by that, I mean, if the dollar goes from 65 to 80 and then back to 65, then it goes both ways, right? So if you, yes, if you bought at 65 and if you sold at 80, then you would need a 20% gain to break even. Absolutely true. But it, only, it doesn't always go one direction and the timing is normally up to the investor. So if it did that, you could simply hang on as if you would if share fell from $1.80. You're not forced to sell if it falls 20%. You can simply hang on and get a better price at some other point if the share price goes back up. So it's not just about where it goes next, but where it goes in the fullness of time. Doc? Uh, no, I don't really have anything specific to add. Just the, the way I have said this before, the way I look at uh, the exchange rate is basically if you're investing over a period of time, you, you land up sort of getting in the average exchange rate. Um, so if you're a long-term investor and you have a longer time horizon and you're regularly investing, then it doesn't really matter because you should, in theory, land up somewhere on the average of, what, 72 cents or something like that has been since the, um, the Australian dollar has floated. So Exactly. Good question, Ben. Thank you, mate. Um, also, to the value of compounding matters, right? So if you're going to hold something for five years and it goes up three or four times in value, uh, you don't mind a trimmed discount to get in. So also think about the long-term share price, not just the currency. All right, another question, mate, comes from uh, G Castle is the handle. Not sure who G Castle is. Um, morning, Scott. Absolutely love the podcast. My partner and I have been listening since Andrew was on there. Uh, Andrew, who I don't, I don't know any Andrews. Gone dead to me. Absolutely dead to me. No. Andrew Page was uh, Doc's predecessor on this particular podcast who did a good job. Uh, Doc is doing an excellent job as well. So I think it's an upgrade. I'll tell, I'll tell Andrew it was an upgrade. Uh, he said, a question for you and Doc, please. I am considering putting money into a managed fund especially with global exposures and a growth focus. Could you advise on the things to look out for when researching? Or do you think there is sufficient upside in investing in an ETF? Full on, hashtag, get Doc on Insta. I love that hashtag, Doc. I think it's my favourite hashtag. Other than get a better rate, it's pretty much line ball. I think the get Doc on Insta makes me laugh more. Get, get a better rate probably achieves a little bit more than getting you on Instagram. Although, if we get you on there, maybe that is a seismic moment in, uh, in social media history. All right, mate. Looking for overseas investing through a managed fund, what should we be looking out for? Well, this is a, such a broad question, right? I mean, it depends on what you really want. So, I mean, so I guess well, here's what the thing. What are the watch outs then, mate? What would you? What yeah, would you... Well, I'll tell. Uh, yeah, that's exactly what I was going to do. To tell the watch outs. So, what you don't want to do is you don't want to invest in an overseas, I guess, managed fund that is effectively like an overseas index. 
Because if it's like an overseas index, you can just invest in an ETF and pay no fees, right? Um, so that's the thing to keep in mind. So if, if, some, if an overseas fund is, you know, investing that looks like the NASDAQ 100, well, then you can straightforward invest in NASDAQ 100. If it looks like some version of the S&P 500, well, you can invest in the S&P 500. If, you, if it's investing in the largest global companies, uh, you know, the largest 100 global companies, then that also you can invest. So yeah, I think... If you want to invest globally, you want to look at what is doing. So, you know, if you're looking for growth, then you if there's if it's a if it's a growth fund focused on not any specific index, but you know, you know, across across the board, invest in a bunch of different things, but it's focused on growth, has a good track record, then that's sort of the thing I would be looking for. Uh, for anything standard, there are so many different ways in which you can just find an ETF with very low fees. Uh, and I, I just mentioned some, you know, you want to invest in the healthcare sector, the telecom sector, uh, emerging markets, you want to invest in S&P, NASDAQ 100, or, um, you know, US small caps, name it. There are so many ETFs that you can get on board today. Yeah, watch the fees, but you almost need someone, uh, some fund that's going to deliver uh, superior returns to the index and has sort of maybe some sort of mandate, either uh, other growth mandate or a dividend mandate or some mandate that you're specifically looking for, um, mm. then that makes sense. That That's how I think about it. Uh, but again, individual circumstances and all those things matter. Yeah, for sure. I, mean, I, I can't add too much to that. I think just to, to draw out a point you made, if you're going to invest with a fund manager, you want to believe that fund manager can beat the market after fees, those last two words are really important because uh, you know, you're paying a decent fee, as you say, Doc, above what you would otherwise be, be doing if you invest in ETF yourself. So you want to be able to beat the market, otherwise invest in the market. Same with our advice, by the way. I wouldn't disqualify us from that, that comparison. If we can't help you beat the market, go somewhere else. Now, like with us, a fund manager you're looking over time, they're not going to beat the market every quarter, every year, even maybe two or three years. But if over time they can beat the market after fees, they might be worth investing in. So as always, that's the first thing to think about. And as Doc says, if you can't, buy a cheap ETF and go fishing. So that's 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 the key one. Uh, in that sense, you asked about what to look out for. Track record matters, both of the business, but also the individuals running the fund, because you know it's one thing to say, well, you know, Fund A did really well when Warren Buffett was there, but now he's left, who's the new guy? Um, was, it, was it Fund A that was important or was it Buffett's track record that was important? Um, those things are important to make sure you understand. Um, I think looking at what they're investing and how they're investing. So again, the style, just because I'm a global growth fund, doesn't mean I'm necessarily the one you want or investing in the sort of stocks you maybe necessarily want to invest in. Um, I think it's, you know, it's one of those, again, you want to be just, just work out why you're, why you're making the choice. So why buy a managed fund or why invest a managed fund? Why growth? Why global? Once you've answered those questions, it gives you an option of, or it gives you the, the information I think you need to decide what other options there are. So a NASDAQ ETF, for example. Uh, based in Australia, buy a whole lot of tech stocks on the NASDAQ. If that's kind of what you're after anyway, and you are happy with the ETF return, the market return, then buy that particular ETF if you want something more. And we all do. That's why we're stock investors individually, as, as Doc and I are, and as the Motley Fool offers. Then you want to believe you can beat the market. You want to have some reason to believe they can do it. The other thing just to watch out for is a com- is a, a version of the same answer I gave before, but it's don't be... Don't be um, Seduced by the last 12 months' performance in any in any fund, either good or bad. Um, there's a lot of research out there that says the average fund underperforms the index. The average fund investor underperforms even worse, and that's because they jump around all the time. They keep chasing last year's winner 
um, and very rarely is last year's winner this year's winner, and even less rarely is it next year's winner. Uh, and so just just be a bit just be a bit careful there, or more rarely I should have said, just be a little bit careful that you don't jump around chasing the last winner and, and cost yourself some money on the way through. So that's probably what I'd add to that. Question from Daz Doc. <laughs> I love this question. Now you're gonna have to restrain yourself, mate, because you have some thoughts on cochlea. You have to restrain yourself. Daz says. <laughs> What is the deal with Cochlear? It only went through a capital raising of 140 bucks a share a month ago. Now posts a 60% decline in sales for April and state they aren't confident with what the future holds, yet the share prices welcome the news with a 7% increase. He says, <laughs> what is wrong with the ASX? Or am I too rational to be a successful investor? Doc, you want first go at this one? Oh, I have a lot to say. Um, <laughs> Try and keep it to the question. Well, uh, <laughs> this is a brilliant question, and I love it. I love it because I really think this, in certain parts of the market, and without taking specific names, um, on the ASX in particular, actually, I think certain blue chips get thought of as they are like made in gold and they are like the best things in sliced bread. And uh-huh. then they get priced as if they're like the best Swiss cheese on planet. They might be good, but they're not the best Swiss cheese on the planet. That is exactly what's happening here. Like, I mean, you know, like exactly all the things, you know, 60% decline in sales, the future looks cloudy. You know, sure, I mean, this company is probably gonna grow its earnings at 5%, 6%, 10%. Uh, yeah, it's gonna be stable. It's gonna, you know, over time, its service revenue is gonna go up or all those things, that's all good. Does it deserve a 40 times P? Probably not. I don't know. Last I checked was 40 times P. So, but there are quite a few like this. And I think it's a, it's a problem of mandate. A lot of people invest, um, uh, you know, there's a lot of that superannuation, $2.5 trillion that by, via mandate is designed to move into companies like this. And it therefore, it's a, it's a small pool of um, uh, companies being chased by a large pool of funds that right. creates what I call the pyramid effect. Uh, you know, you're basically, somebody's paying more and then the hope is somebody else is going to pay more. Um, you know, how does this end? I don't know, but yeah, I really, really worry about that. Uh, you know, there was a blue chip called Flight Center. It's no longer a blue chip, right? So something can happen. Um, and, and I think the biggest sign, as I've said before, of a blue chip company is a blue chip company doesn't come out with a uh, you know beggar's bowl saying, give me more money when I have trouble. A blue chip company <laughs> says, I can close I can close my doors and I will ride through this for years. Um, that is what I call a blue chip company. So, you know, Cochlear doesn't meet my blue chip definition. Uh, but yeah, what do I know? Um, <laughs> shares have gone up, which is good for shareholders. Uh, but yeah, it, 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 it defies logic. So, uh, last point to your point, you can be a successful investor and be rational as well <laughs> because you don't have to play poker. Uh, you don't have to expect somebody else is going to pay more because, uh, you know, that, that is a pyramid in my way, in my way of thinking. Um, but it doesn't mean that that's the only company to invest in. My rant over. All right, Daz, luckily for you, I'm less cynical than Doc. So uh, I don't necessarily, I, I disagree with bits and pieces of what Doc's got to say, but we've, we've bashed this one out over over the last couple of weeks, I feel free to go back and have a listen to some of those podcasts. A um, couple of things. So the, the rationality about being a successful investor, mate, is kind of what we talked about on Friday's podcast. And this is a really, really important thing for every investor to really get their heads around is the movement in share prices only ever reflects the movement in expectations. 
That and that, that's kind of number one, right? Like over time, the share price will reflect the underlying value of the company. But if you're looking at price, you know, today versus price a month ago, or the price today versus the price next month, what will impact the share price is, is just straight out the change in sentiment as to the future expectations of the business. Now, in Cochlear's case, um, the reality is that investors would have expected, should have expected sales to be poor in April and May and June and July. Uh, there are fewer people going to clinics. Clinics are closed or working on reduced hours. There were for a decent amount of time, for example, elective surgery was cancelled in Australia, specifically and Cochlear is a global company, but take your pick around the world. I wasn't surprised personally, and Cochlear was a recommendation as a share advisor. I wasn't surprised that the sales were down that, that amount. I think we'll see more of it um, until things get back to normal properly. Now, there will be some sort of um, pent-up demand, by the way. That's part of it because if you need a cochlear hearing implant, it's not like if you can't get one in April, you're not going to do it at all. You're going to go back at some point and get the implant, right? So I think it's a deferral. Maybe you go to your competitor, maybe in some cases, but they probably win some from their competitors as well. So what the market was really saying is before the news came out, we thought X. After the news, we think Y. And it turns out that in this case, it was simply about, hey, it wasn't worse than we than we thought, and the business is kind of doing okay. And that was enough in a very worried world, very worried stock market world. We said again on Friday, the market hates uncertainty, right? It'll pay more for the facts than the than the expectations, um, generally speaking, as long as expectations aren't terrible. And so the, the net result was investors were kind of concerned beforehand, less concerned afterwards, or felt more confident afterwards, and that's why the share price went up. So... It's that's it's like it really. It's a great question, wonderful question, and super super important as you, as you think about this um, to think about exactly what's happening there. It's not the fact that sales are down, therefore the shares are worth less. That would be the case in a, in an actual you know like for like world if that was new news that no one expected. You'd absolutely see the share price fall. But in this case, it was the difference in expectations between pre announcement and post announcement, and the market simply saying we feel better about Cochlear after the announcement than we did before. Even though sales were down, if they'd expected sales to be down 50, 60, 70, 80, 90%, 40%, 10%, you'd expect a very, very different market response. So it's always about the change in sentiment and expectations before and after. And that's, we said it in earnings season all the time. You know, companies go out with a 20% you know, profit fall and shares go up because the market thought it'd be worse. And similarly, we've seen plenty of high-flying tech companies, for example, come out with great, spectacularly great results and the share prices fall because the market was expecting even more. So yes, be rational, but apply that rationality to the market as it is, including the psychological and temperamental impacts and, and aspects of investing, not just the pure, it was X, now it's X minus 60, therefore the shares should be selling for a lower price. It's just It doesn't work that way. And that's one thing that's really important as an investor to get your head around as quickly as you can. Any more cockily bashing, Doc, or can we move on? Oh, no, no, no. You know, I like cochlear. I'm just talking about valuation, nothing else. <laughs> Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. We have a remarkable number of Australian medical technology companies per kind of, you know, head of population over around the world. The cochleas, the resmeds, a little one called Nanasonics, um, CSL itself, of course. I, I, don't, I don't know if there's anything to it, Doctor. Is there, is there something in there? You're, you're an ex-academician. Can I say academician? Academic anyway? Yeah, I think you can. Um, yeah. Academician, is that right? Um, is, is, is there something, has there been in the past something, is it, is it, is it kind of, do we have a particular expertise in it or we just got lucky or they just kind of, I mean, it seems, you know, you wouldn't, it's just pure, pure random chance. I mean, you wouldn't, if it was a, 
if it was a, a proper distribution, we shouldn't have that many, you know, <laughs> decently world-class medical device companies, I wouldn't have thought, or medical companies in general. Uh, am I just misstating it and kind of misunderstanding the universe of available stocks? Are we doing something different or is it just pure luck? Um, no, I think I've said this before. I think on on um, on the on sort of the biotech front, I think we we do better. We're doing probably on a per capita basis probably better better than what you would think we would do. And mm-hmm. you know, so history. I think a couple of things. History, historically, um, there have been a number of companies that have had uh, Australian inventions or they've come out of uh, CSIRO, for example. So CSL. Is a, is a you know is yeah, basically right. a government sponsored laboratory. Um, uh, the cochlear is an Australian invention. Uh, so things like that, I think, um, said so local inventions. Now, why? I think maybe maybe medical the the, the university system and the technology space here has uh, or the the education system here around medicine and or biotech has been good. So those would be my guesses um, mm-hmm. as to why. There are a number of other smaller biotech companies too that have been, you know, trying things for a while. Again, it takes in in biotech, it takes a long time to succeed, right? So yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So I mean, there was Certex before that. You know, Certex got bought out, but I mean, the Certex was Australian uh-huh. again. Um, I believe technology also was Australian, so it's not um, right. And, and, and we were talking about Avita. Avita's technology is also Australian. I mean, you know, it's the invention is Australian, whether it is commercialized differently is a different point. So, so I think there's, there's probably on that, maybe there's something to do with science. I'm not across that well, but maybe the science there is very strong um, on a per capita basis. And therefore that results in, you know, good R&D coming out and therefore good commercialization opportunities. That would be my guess. Yeah. Interesting. Thank you. I, I just, yeah, sorry, question about that notice. It just occurred to me that, you know, given, given your expertise, I'm curious as to, as to your thoughts about that. So good, um, good question. Thank you, Des. All right. Question from Scott. Sounds like a great black name like that. Yeah. Must be a, Are you not very, sending in questions? Probably, probably very funny. Probably <laughs> really smart. Um, or maybe, maybe not. Uh, maybe he's lower averages. If I'm not, he must be. All right. Hi, guys. Interested to know your thoughts or philosophies on when stocks are doing well and how you balance the situation between letting them continue to ride or using some of the profit to reinvest in other ideas to continue to diversify. This may be more tricky when dealing with high growth volatile stocks when tough to predict either way. I'm happy to ride the highs and lows, but how do you weigh up the balance? Do you let them ride? Do you sell all when you think it's outperforming or sell a portion to still keep yourself exposed somewhat? Or do you have other ideas? Looking forward to hearing your thoughts, Scott. And that's not me for the record, different Scott. Uh, Doc, you're the you're the growth investor among us, or the growther investor. That's another word I'm just making up. Growther. Um, how do you think about when to sell, when businesses and, and particularly the investment outcomes are going particularly well? Yeah. So part of this, I'll, I'll refer back to say that you know, part of this we discussed on Friday, sort of my approach to um, you know finding growth and investing in growth and 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 thinking about growth. So look there, but at a high level, basically, I'm looking for long term compounders with, with large market opportunities, right? So therefore, if, if that's the case uh, and my company can find new opportunities, can I keep expanding its market, then it should be compounding at a pretty high rate for a long time. If that's the case, then I generally do not look to sell unless a few things happen, right? So if, if I think that the thesis is no longer true or that something else has happened and that makes um, you know the future growth uh, potential disappear, 
or just, you know, I was just wrong, right? So like, I mean, if you pick a, you know, speculative company early on and, you know, you believe certain things are going to happen, but they don't happen. And, and, and therefore, you know, you know that your thesis is kind of busted or, you know, there's going to be lots of dilutive capital raisings just to make things happen. Uh, then that's a good enough reason to exit. So almost exit means failure. Uh, you know, it's, it's my way of saying that, you know, the growth story no longer holds. I don't, I'm not, now, okay, so I caveat that. I'm not a person who does in my own personal or the family portfolio that I manage, I do not do rebalancing. Um, I'm not a rebalancing type of person. And the, and the reason I don't do rebalancing is that, again, then I, have to, then I have to make this decision about, you know, what should I sell, how much should we allocate. I, instead, I just try to keep it simple. Um, right. Now, this is not how you would manage a professional portfolio, largely because there are other reasons, other factors that will come into play, um, you know, such as volatility, how much, you know, ups and downs you want to manage and things like that. You know, is it too risky to have your funds in one, one, one company um, and so on and so forth. But what would I, I usually do is if allocation becomes too large, I just allocate my capital to another idea, not the idea that has the maximum weight. Even if that idea that has the maximum weight is my best idea, I just don't put money into it. It's just because, you know, it doesn't make sense. Uh, You know, if something has 15%, you know, I usually like, that's my, like, I would not add any extra funds to something that I own 10% of, for example. That's what I basically cap it. And then if it becomes 20% because it just did so well, then I would kill myself by thinking, well, I should have put more money there. But uh, I didn't because it's just, just my way of m- m- managing my risk. But sell is almost always means things have not worked out. It also often means that I'm losing like maybe a lot of money, but I am not trimming. I am not um, doing those things largely because as long as the whole, and as, when the goal, growth story does not hold at that point, I do, I do think that I'm going to sell. The other thing I'll just point out is that good growth stories eventually become, at some point, you know, it becomes, it changes from being a growth compounding machine to being sort of a value dividend, increasing a dividend play at, at the larger scale, right? Yeah. And that too is fine. Some of those, you know, even if you're a growthy investor, you can have some of those because um, it's nice to see that cash come in. Uh, you know, it's no longer compounding at that rate. You could sell it, you know, it's not, you know, it's not maybe not delivering the 20% return that you want or 15% mm-hmm. is delivering you like 10, but it's good to have some of those in the portfolio. So I'm just a less turnover type of person Personally, that's what I do. Nice, mate. I'm actually pretty similar. Uh, although I'm not as high growth investor as you, I do tend to let my good ideas run. Uh, largely because if they've gone well, they probably deserve to go well for the most part. Now, it doesn't mean that, you know, share market hasn't got carried away with stories or other things. <clears throat> Excuse me. But in general speaking, in general, I've, I've made more, well, I've lost more selling stuff too early uh, than I've saved by selling you know, too early if that makes sense. So um, where I've thought, oh, the, the thesis over, I'll get out now. The money I've left on the table by doing that has been really expensive. Generally speaking, my view of these days is if I've done the work and got the thesis roughly right, letting it have a bit of rope is generally just a, a smarter financial decision, even though I'm going to miss the top by definition. Um, and again, on a case-by-case basis, we've said a lot in the last couple of days, mate, it's really worth remembering. These are probability games on large numbers of, um, instances, not single cases. So generally speaking, that's been my experience. I think giving the businesses some rope is a smart idea for me personally. Um, I, I like your point about the concentration size. I've done the same. I've I've had stocks that I want to add more money to because I felt like they were great ideas, but I just haven't let myself because they're already big portions of my portfolio. I think that's a smart way to think about diversifying if you're adding money over time. If obviously you've stopped adding 
thinking you're living on, on the proceeds is a different story. In that case, you probably want to think about the impact of a fall on your overall portfolio and, frankly, the sleep at night test. So how good do you feel if you own something that's 15 20% of your portfolio that falls 10%? That probably feel 20 to 30%. Probably feels a whole lot worse than if you're accumulating your 25 and you know you're going to be adding a whole lot more to your portfolio in the years ahead. But yeah, I don't I don't rebalance either, mate. It's not my thing. All right, question from Darren came through this morning. I like this one. Is well, I like it. I like Darren's a, Darren's a regular correspondent, which is nice. I also like the way you open this podcast. He says, "G'day, podcast superstars." I like that. I put that on my business card. Can I do that? You should. Scott Phillips, podcast superstar. That's got on my business card. <laughs> He says, there's talk of the US going negative on rates. I, I like the way he phrases the question, mate. He says, is there a chance you can discuss this on the podcast and how it's supposed to do for the US what it has not done for any other country for the past five years? Cheers, Darren. I'm going to assume from that, Doc, Darren has a view that maybe lower rates or negative rates aren't good for the US. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to speculate and assume, based on the way he asked the question, that's what he believes. Do you agree with him? Yeah, like, I, I mean, we discussed this uh, in, again on the Friday's podcast. I mean, there's a, the problem with the rates. Rates are like currency to some extent. They are relative, right? So, I mean, so I get why someone would say the U.S. should have negative rates if, you know, large parts of, for example, Europe have negative rates. Well, you know, it's, it's this race to bottom in which no one is going to win because if uh, the rates are negative in Germany or in you know, Europe because the, because of the European Union, if the rates are minus one in Europe, uh, uh, in the European Union and yours is, say, plus one, then effectively I think some of that should get reflective also in the currency. So there's all those, you know, plays that would happen. Um, I guess... <sighs> Does it, I don't think unilaterally changing just the rates actually help. So I agree right. with him on on that. You know, you need you use the rates as a as a tool to encourage people to borrow more or borrow less to basically control you know what's happening in in terms of investments and spending in your economy. I think that makes sense. Turning it into a currency war machine. Uh, sounds risky. Basically, you know, it's not going to help. Is is my guess. I don't. I'm not a monetary policy expert, so that'll be my guess. Uh, the second part of the answer would be that uh, I think Jeremy Powell has basically said that that's not going to happen. <laughs> At least now. So they uh, so said, don't expect the U.S. rates to go negative. Um, so he's agreeing. I think Powell is agreeing with what Darren is saying, that the rates are not going to go negative. Um, but again, you know, people have said the rates are not going to go negative and then they go negative, so who knows? Uh, that was I, thought, mate. I, I would take I would take Jerome Powell's uh, statement for all it's worth, which is it won't be negative at least this week. Because we yeah, know well, that's that, what uh, that, yeah. He, he has, he has, well, also, I was going to say he has form. That, that's, that's too cynical. Um, all central bankers and governments should change their minds when circumstances change. So, uh, you know, yeah. whatever they say, they believe right now. I, I actually believe that. Uh, Powell's also had some decent amount of political interference, I should say, making too political. Uh, fair to say that Donald Trump's been very vocal about what Powell's done right and badly. It does seem like, either coincidentally or otherwise, the Fed's come to see things Trump's way more than once uh, after having a different view to start with. So we, all should, we shall see. Um, I, yeah. I actually agree with both of you. I think I think negative rates are. I think if we get to that point, there's got to be a better solution than negative rates because of the unintended consequences and, frankly, the uncharted territory we're in. I think you know monetary policy is not the only tool, and so fiscal policy, i.e., governments taxing and spending, has to be brought to bear at some point in this story. It hasn't yet in a meaningful way. And when you you know yeah, you can worry about budget surf, surpluses and deficits. And I do worry about those. 
But when rates are negative, I think we're saying, you know, we're, we're in emergency territory anyway. We're trying to choose the least worst option and, and fiscal policy has to be part of that solution. Um, one other thought, Darren, is just that I take your point and I know, what, I know the point you're making about it hasn't worked thus far, or at least worked in air quotes thus far anywhere else. I talked last week about the counterfactual, i.e. we don't know what would have happened had they not done it. So it's one thing to say low rates or negative rates hasn't worked. See, look, the economy is not back to 3% of growth or whatever you want to use as the benchmark. True, absolutely. The unknown, and I'm not saying you're wrong, but I'm also not saying you're right. The unknown is what if rates weren't negative in Europe? What if they were still 3%? What would the economy have gone through? What would it look like right now? Maybe the answer is same and you'd be dead right. Or maybe it's, you know what, they would be in a deep multi-year recession had that not happened, in which case, while it looks like not much has been achieved, maybe a lot has actually been achieved in terms of the downside saved, even though the upside necessarily isn't as big as we would have liked. Um, there's always that counterfactual to take into account. So it's just important that we don't look at the outcomes only and say, unless negative rates give us 3% GDP growth, they haven't worked. Um, it's, it's also worth saying, how much have they added to or, or simply subtracted from the downside um, that might have been the case otherwise. Always worth putting that into, into account. Um, I would say too, Doc, just quickly, the yes, rates are to some degree a zero-sum game because you have to be with other people on when it comes to exchange rate, but there is also when it comes to rates and fiscal policy, just an absolute situation. So if companies can borrow at 2% rather than 4%, um, regardless of what the US dollar does versus any other currency, they in theory could or should be able to, for example, invest in more activities or put more money towards um, growth driving, you know, initiatives that, that require dollar investments. And if you can borrow that more cheaply, in theory, you do more of it. So there is absolutely a currency piece and that's what people are focusing on, probably the largest part of it, quite honestly, particularly right now with negative rates. Uh, but other than that, given the given the the absolute, so there's the relative piece with currency, but there is an absolute impact when it comes simply how much does it cost to borrow and therefore how much can you afford to borrow and what do you do with that cash? Now, I'm also, by the way, not convinced that lower rates matter that much now. I don't know who's borrowing at 1% who wouldn't borrow at 1.25%. I mean, there, there's, there is a marginal reality by definition, of course. Um, but, you know, if rates were one percentage point higher, which businesses aren't going to do profitable investing, you know, uh, projects? If I, if I can invest in a project that's going to cost me, it was going to make a million dollars and it cost me 100 grand in interest to do that, well, you can double the interest bill. I'm still going to do the project. Now, if it's that line ball that I'm not going to do it if the rates are up 0.25%, then... Frankly, as a business, A, you shouldn't be doing it. And as a government or a regulator or a central bank, honestly, we should be encouraging those particular projects that are so line ball. So I've answered out of every corner of my mouth twice, um, but hopefully that, that helps. Any more on that, Doc? No, I have nothing to add. Motley Fool Money. Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. We might make this our last question, I reckon, from Craig. Craig says, hi, Scott. For myself, investing is a hobby I enjoy. Safe to say my wife doesn't share my interest, but to her credit, she lets me do my own thing with one prerequisite. Don't lose all our money. <laughs> with this in mind, I've always tried to get a good balance between risk and reward and tended to invest in companies with a history of growing earnings per share, high return on equity, low debt, and a promising future. Since joining The Fool, I've started to think a little differently. With existing companies being disrupted and new industries emerging, I'm thinking it may be actually less risky to have a portion of your portfolio in some high growth companies. With much thought, I've decided to invest in 10 companies for 10% of my portfolio that maybe could 10 bag, in other words, go up 10 times in value 
over the next decade. Have I turned into a gambler? Interested in your thoughts? Love the podcast. Full on. That's a good question from Craig, mate. Um, I'm going to say, I'm going to assume you're going to say high growth is good and that it's less risky, but prove me right or wrong. What, what, do you, what do you think about Craig's view that moving into some of those higher growth companies is actually less risky than some of the other stuff he's got invested? Um, so I wouldn't, like, I wouldn't say it's less risky. Um, I would just say that sort of, you know, if you're picking the, the companies appropriately, then sort of risk and reward sort of have a relationship between them, right? So, I mean, you're taking more risk, you're getting more reward. I think the, the thing to think about is your strike rate, and by what, and by strike rate, I mean the percentage of ideas or recs or percentage of, of stocks that are going to, you know, deliver solid returns are going to be smaller from that sort of the riskier pool, right? So you need to, you need to make, you need to, I guess, uh, you know, take uh, take more hits, right? So if you're, you know, you need to be able to connect that dot, you know, you're going to miss a lot of balls, but, you know, you have to make, say, but you have to play enough, long enough to sort of make sure that you make enough runs because if you're not going to play long enough, then you're not going to make enough runs and you have to, you know, take enough attempts at, at it. So I think that's the that's the thing. You, It's harder to run sort of, for example, a concentrated portfolio yeah. in this, this approach. That's the main Thing I'll point out. So the only thing I'll say is that you know if you if you if you put ten percent of your funds into this, that it's probably fine. Um, but you can't have just ten picks, in my opinion, that actually um, do the high growth investing or this riskier investing. Again, it depends on what you know is is riskier. Some people might call um, you know cochlear riskier versus say you know Woolworths, right? So it's a risky risk is. Is, is a large spectrum, right? You know, the Woolworths is probably the least risky company one can get because it's not going to go, blah, blah, blah. But, uh, you know, uh, in that sense, maybe, you know, Nanosonics, for example, is riskier, right? But maybe it's not that risky if you think about, you know, its business prospects and so on and so forth. So I think that's the thing uh, to consider. So, you know, finding enough ideas to spread your bets across, just realizing that, you know, it's you have to accept that there are going to be more failures on average. Nice one. I like that, mate. I think that's. I think that's right. I think. I, look, Craig. As we would like to say, we can't give you specific advice. There are though the realities of simply um, managing the family, like <laughs> put that politely. Um, you know, like everything, maximizing your returns is the theoretical best approach, but it may not be the approach that lets you sleep at night, that keeps your wife comfortable, or makes you feel confident in in what you're doing and how you're doing it. Uh, and so it may, it may be for some people, uh, and Doc said before, he's got some cash in the offset account. I've certainly got the same. I could, I am absolutely sure I get a better return on the market. But for me personally, I won't speak for Doc, for our family circumstances, it'd be better to have, for us to have more cash in the offset. So that's what we've decided to do. Um, that is a suboptimal financial decision, but it is a, a very, very optimal life decision for us and our family. So that's how we do it for us. Um, it's, not, it's not, you know, I mean, we're paying off the mortgage. I mean, any money paid off the mortgage in excess of, the, the minimum is arguably too right? money that could otherwise be invested. So we always make these trade-off decisions as as people and as family units, and you have to decide what's best for you guys. Um, to Doc's point, I think I think that's absolutely right. I think you know if you're not going to beat the market, buy the market. So maybe you buy an ETF and go fishing, right? If that's what you want to do, as I like to say, if you're going to try and beat the market, though, it does absolutely make sense to think about the group of companies that, as a group, 
are likely to give you market beating returns as long as you and your your family are comfortable with those decisions that that you're making and the way you want to you know create that portfolio. I think ten companies with ten percent, you know, not, not each but all together, is, is a really good way to test out that particular theory. You know, think about that group as a as a group, see how that goes over time, and see how comfortable you feel with it, the returns you're getting whether you're picking the right stocks, whether you can deal with, your wife can deal with the, the volatility that comes with it. Bad times like now, if you've had them for a few months, uh, you'll be down a bit probably in some of those stocks, maybe up in others. If you could, if you can kind of cope with that and deal with that and move forward with that, and that's great. Um, so look, I think it's a, to my mind, I think absolutely. You know, you want to maximize your returns if you can, to the extent that you feel comfortable to do that mentally, emotionally. Um, and some of those high growth companies, as long as they're well bought, well chosen, well priced when you buy them, are a great way to do it. There's nothing to say that, you know, CBA needs to, to, needs to be a better investment than Afterpay or vice versa. Um, it's the individual assessment of the companies, but I'd happily own Afterpay before CBA, for example. Is it, does it have downside risk? Absolutely, but so does CBA. And, and often, uh, as one of our ex-colleagues, Morgan Hauser used to say, sometimes the biggest risk is not taking enough risk at all. Any more on that, Doc? No, sir, I have nothing to add. Beautiful. That wraps us up for this Sunday, mate. Before we go, I want to remind our listeners to subscribe to the Triple M Motley Full Money podcast through iTunes or their favourite Android podcast app. And, of course, fools, if you like what we're doing, please give us a rating, leave us some stars, leave us a review, say nice things. We're nice people. Come on, help us out. We're sure that they're friends and other people who you don't even know yet, but maybe they're friends to be yet made via the App Store rating review system. Maybe not. Okay. Don't forget, you can get a dose of foolishness straight to your inbox by going to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back next week with another dose of foolish insight. Fool on. Fool on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.